Tonight I'd like to talk about the joy of renunciation. And uh, I was reading an article in preparation for this uh, written by one of the Western Buddhist nuns, Sister Suryapana. And uh, she talked about how the word sometimes horrifies people, right? So it's just an interesting contrast to say the joy of renunciation. We'd probably be more comfortable with something like, well, we should renounce, you know, we should let go. You'll be better off for it if you do. But to talk about it as a joy is is provocative. Is it a joy? And as you know, in this practice, we're really invited to become independent, like to confirm what we hear from the Buddha and from our teachers, to confirm it in our own life, to check it out. That famous refrain in the text, Ehipasiko, which is some version of, please, Take a look, see whether or not this is helpful or true in your own life, whether this checks out in your own experience. And always, you know, um, we want to take a shortcut. Okay, so it's all about renunciation, the whole path. So why bother with the practice? I'll go right to the renunciation, you know, and I'll just let it all go. And then, no surprise, we end up being a miserable person, right? (laughs) Having let go what we didn't want to let go of, trying to get something, right? Whatever that joy of renunciation is. And it can be a real setup. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, somebody scorned in love, somebody who's undertaken some spiritual practice with some intensity only to feel like they've been betrayed, like it didn't deliver. I was told it was all about renunciation. So I did this, I did that. I signed up for a retreat at IMS. I shut my cell phone off. I got up at five o'clock and sat still for an hour. You know, I didn't talk to all these seemingly interesting people around me. And all I got was this (laughs) t-shirt. That's what we need to have on the closing day. Sell (laughs) t-shirts. The Buddha was uh, apparently, you know, as we look at the texts that have survived all these centuries, he was a really skillful teacher and he had this real knack to meet people where they're at and didn't try to kind of point out something that they weren't really ready to see, but instead really took the long view. So what are they ready to see, ready to understand? And then in understanding that, they'll be ready to understand more, have more confidence, more interest, and in that way to sort of take people along the way, support people along the way. Now, these days, of course, we have everything available to us. So we hear all the teachings, and this is why we want to just, we hear something about letting go, putting everything down, and we just want to go right there. 
And so we get a lot of this ricochet in practice where we're really wholehearted and and really take up the teachings and then feel some real confusion and doubt and maybe give them up for a while, pursue something else. So this more gradual approach, it, it, it really involves letting go, but the Buddha really framed it in a more, in a way we could hear, you know, you want to be happy. And he's not even talking so much about spiritual happiness, just like, do you want well-being? Do you want things to work out for you? Okay, practice generosity. Practice becoming a more generous person. Develop this deep, resonant value in non-harming. This integrity where we really care about not contributing to harm. I mean, this is not where we'd normally go if we wanted to be happy. We check our cell phones and see if there's anything interesting to watch. We'd kind of think about places we've heard our friends have traveled to and maybe I'll go on a trip or new relationship, new place to live, interesting food. So this was, but it was really aimed at people in this ordinary, I'm a person who wants relief, I'm a person who wants happiness. And he said, okay. Check it out. Cultivate generosity in little and big ways, natural ways, and see what comes back. See how your heart does. See if you get what you desire. That's sort of interesting. And same with sila, this commitment to non-harming, like the precepts are part of this training in sila, really valuing non-harming and living in accordance to that value, with that value. And then the third, these are called the three bases of meritorious action, sort of actions, intentional actions that lead to well-being. And the third one is to develop the mind, to develop the heart, bhavana. So we undertake dana, sila, bhavana. This is something you hear a lot in the tradition. As a way, an ordinary way, of being happy. Now, this isn't a quick fix, of course, right? So if, if you go to the, the Buddha and you tell this person you want a quick fix, right, <laughs> you probably get a laugh, right? But there is a way to turn things around, apparently. And again, this is for us to check out. And it's not just like we have to like spend a couple decades before we have an answer. We can also check out by observing those around us, observing people who, from our perspective, seem to be very generous, have a generous spirit, having renounced stinginess, right? Or people who have a real integrity around non-harming, who have renounced acting in ways that cause harm. Really cultivated a a sensitivity in all the different places in life to how they might be complicit or contributing to harm. In the institutions they're part of, in all the choices they make. Like, does that just make us tight, valuing non-harming? Or valuing generosity? 
or does it lead to happiness? But we can observe other people that are stingy and see, like, do they seem happy? Or that seem to have been generous in a natural way for a while, and do they seem happy? And same with people with a lot of integrity, a lot of that resonant commitment to non-harming. Do they seem happy? And people who are really loose around issues of harming, and how are they doing? Right. So we have a lot of examples to develop this discernment, whether these qualities, people who have developed their mind and have over time more stability of awareness, less distractedness, more wholesome qualities of mind like calm and the divine abodes that you've been practicing in the afternoon, loving kindness or metta. Right, this purity of the heart is the same as bhavana. Really taking responsibility for the ecology of our heart, of our mind. Oh yeah, I'm going to not just leave it to chance, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to own the responsibility to do what I can do to plant really wholesome seeds in my heart. And it might be really useful, like if this resonates some, if you're a human being that wants to be happy in a very ordinary sense, wants well-being, wants good things to happen in your life, and you've tried having a lot of money or being liked by all the people you want to like you, or being physically beautiful, or you know whatever, thing you, whatever you've tried in your life, and you still feel like you want to be happy, like you haven't gotten there yet, you know, you could, try, you could check this out as a reflection, both in your own life, cultivating generosity and this commitment to non-harming and developing the heart, cultivating a balanced and stable and wholesome heart, and just see whether you actually end up with the happiness that your heart has been looking for. Now here's the kicker, right? You might actually, in that ordinary sense, become very happy and have a lot of wonderful things happen to you, like people really love you. And uh, yeah, just that uh, feel like you can contribute, you know, just that wholesome sense of belonging. The kinds of things that lead to an ordinary but fulfilling in, a, in that ordinary limited sense quality of well-being. It's then when the Buddha would talk in a more subtle way about renunciation. He'd sort of wait to people have understood this basic lawfulness of life. If you act like a jerk, things aren't going to work out very well. If you cultivate really these wholesome qualities things are going to work out better and better for you. I mean, it doesn't mean we won't get cancer. It doesn't mean that the tree won't fall on our car or, you know, all those other things that, because there's there's a lot in play in the world that we live in. But given everything that's in play, what we can do is cultivate these three things, set good things in motion, plant good seeds that will have 
and effect in our lives over time. And our heart will still be bound to these relatively good things that are happening in our life and to all the other conditions that are not in anybody's control, like whether the tree falls in your car or whether the society you live in you know, takes a left turn or a right turn or does a backflip or, you know, whatever, however you might describe the conditions in our society. So then the Buddha would, if you were able to run into him, or a wise person might then give, you, give us teachings on a deeper level of renunciation, and it really goes to this question like, what is this conditioned world, this world of circumstance, what is it here for? Because we casually, without much reflection, think, well, it's here to make me happy. You know, I'm here to derive happiness from my sense experiences, here to derive happiness from my relationships here to derive happiness from the food that I eat, from the comforts comforts that I have, the interesting things I think about, interesting things I do. Right? It's like a very sophisticated theme park for human beings. <laughs> I know it's somewhat of a privileged, well, it definitely is a privileged point of view, but when we get relatively comfortable we tend to fall into this point of view. The world is here to delight in. So first the Buddha would give advice to help people have that relative comfort to set good things in motion as much as possible in their life. And then he would ask them to reflect on this kind of question. Is the pursuit of sense experience going to resolve the uneasiness in my heart, the anxiety in my heart. And again, we learn not just from our own life, but we can observe a lot of lives because we see people around us, we read about them, right? And we see people having the delights that we long for and they seem neurotic, same as we are not necessarily happier, and some of them are a lot, seemingly a lot more unhappy. The people who have the beauty we want or the power or the success or the interesting kitchen gadgets or whatever it might be that we long for. And it really is the beginning of uh, the heart opening, like we're actually now getting to the place where we're ready to hear what the Buddha might have to say these teachings on renunciation. And renunciation in this deeper level really means um, renouncing our ignorance, renouncing our distractedness about what's skillful and unskillful, what's actually what kind of seeds we plant through what we pay attention to and how we pay attention, like paying attention with greed or paying attention with aversion, relating to those unwholesome qualities, 
there we're planting seeds. So first, the first aspect of wisdom is waking up, no longer willing to be distracted, so that the mind is more regularly, the stability of awareness is strong enough, stable enough to begin to discern what's skillful and unskillful. And I'm sure for parts of the day we were here, right? That as we were had some continuity of awareness and we noticed how the mind was relating to the food on our plate or relating to the uh, sound of breathing next to us in the hall or relating to um, the sunshine or relating to any number of things, the thought of my bed in my bedroom. And we noticed the greed or the absence of greed or aversion or the absence of aversion, kindness, right? And we had the sense, so that's skillful. That has the flavor of release, the flavor of freedom seems to be setting that emotion, seems to be wholesome in that way. Oh, that's unwholesome. It's already tight and seems to be setting emotion, tightness, when we're averse or greedy. When um, the Buddha talks about wisdom, you know, he talks about it in these two ways. First, that wisdom, as it develops, it illuminates skillfulness and unskillfulness. And then as wisdom develops, as the wisdom awareness gets stronger, more momentum, then the mind sees these underlying characteristics that everything's changing, that experience is not going to deliver satisfaction. Even nice experience doesn't really deliver satisfaction that lasts. And that it's just a natural process, what's happening in the mind, internally, externally, whatever the knowing mind knows, the stability of awareness, the wisdom awareness sees that it's a natural process. It's not really personal. It's changing, it's limited, and it's not really personal, not worthy of grasping. So this is what wisdom reveals, and then letting go naturally arises out of that deepening wisdom. It's actually a real relief that we don't have to let go. The practice is to develop a mind that can see clearly, right? stabilize the mind, cultivate a continuity of present moment awareness, balanced, non-judging, really over time, discerning the kind of effort, like what Deborah was talking about last night, really learning the difference between over-efforting and giving up, neither of those work, (laughs) and really discerning that sweet spot where the mind is interested, it's curious, knows just the right kind of intention that allows awareness Right, allows the remembering that this is being known, the recognition. Oh yeah, the mind is knowing this now. The mind is feeling this now. It's like this now. I've noticed in the small groups, a lot of people think they're supposed to keep repeating 
the phrases that we say up here. <laughs> but remember, this you can. It can be quite useful to use a mental note, a mental label, or even a phrase like this is being known from time to time. But you don't need to use phrases like that. I just want to drop that in. There's a story from the suttas, the discourses at the time of the Buddha. And there were some younger monks, evidently. And they, you know, um, the way it would be is they would, for a period of time, camp out close enough to town that they could walk in early in the morning, get their alms food. So they carry their bowl. They would stop at a house, maybe do some chanting or maybe just stand. And then if the People living in the house wish they'd come out and offer the monks some food. And they go to the next and to the next. And when they had enough, they'd go back to their place a little bit out of town in the woods. And they'd have their each have their own camp spot close enough that they could maybe shout and hear each other, but far enough away that they had their privacy and their seclusion. But they would usually gather to eat together. In any case, these younger monks were maybe a little restless and they were talking to each other, and they realized that they had all overheard this elder monk kind of making, talking to himself. And a couple of them had crawled close enough, snuck up close enough, and discerned what the person was saying. This elder monk was saying, what bliss, what bliss, what bliss. And they knew a little bit about the history of this person, this uh, elder monk, that he had at some point been a king of some local fiefdom, and so they just presumed, right, projection probably, oh, he's longing for the luxuries of his, you know, privileged life, and we better tell the Buddha. So they did. They tracked down the Buddha, said, hey, just thought you should know, or something like that, (laughs) venerable sir. This elder monk is, you know, mumbling or saying, what bliss, what bliss? And we're a little concerned and we thought you should know. And so the Buddha, probably knowing what was up, but anyway, said to them, well, please tell this elder monk to come see me. And of course they did. And of course the elder monk came and the Buddha asked him, so is this, is this in fact the case? And if so, what's going on? Like, what, what is that about? And this is his response. Before, when I was a householder, maintaining the bliss of kingship, I had guards posted within and without the royal apartments, within and without the city, within and without the countryside. But even though I was thus guarded, thus protected, I dwelled in fear, agitated, distrustful, and afraid. But now, on going alone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty dwelling, I dwell without fear, unagitated, confident, and unafraid, unconcerned, unruffled, my wants satisfied, with my mind like a wild deer. This is the meaning I have in mind when I repeatedly exclaim, what bliss, what bliss. Then on realizing the significance of that, the Buddha on that occasion exclaimed, in whom there exists no provocation, and for whom becoming and non-becoming are put aside, this one, beyond fear, blissful, without grief, whom even the devas can't see. That's a very interesting last line. Devas are these, you know, in the tradition, these angelic, refined, 
beautiful celestial beings, right? And so they have a very refined heart or mind. But even they can't see this person. So that's a little mysterious. Like, what, what is the Buddha talking about? And it's related to this deeper part of wisdom I mentioned a few minutes ago about what opens up as we cultivate the continuity of awareness and the mind sees what it hasn't seen and sees what's skillful and sees what's unskillful. And of course, the more the mind discerns what's skillful and unskillful, that discernment waters the skillful qualities and weakens the unskillful qualities. And you, some of you have reported in the small groups of like periods of time where there were more wholesome qualities in your mind, right? And less of the unwholesome qualities. And this is just the very natural result of paying attention in this balanced, non-judging way because the mind is learning about what's skillful and unskillful. And that understanding changes it strengthens the wholesome and weakens the unwholesome without me as an individual having to get into my mind and kind of get rid of the unwholesome. Just knowing what's unwholesome is a weakening factor for the unwholesome qualities. And just knowing what's wholesome, knowing that kindness in the heart is wholesome, strengthens that quality. Recognizing that there's calm, recognizing that calm is wholesome, is how calm gets strengthened. It's so nice that it's so straightforward. And then that opens the deeper insight into wisdom, that it's just like uh, this article that Ajahn Amaro wrote, one of the senior Western disciples of Ajahn Chah a couple years ago called Just Another Thing in the Forest. That everything, internal, external, is just another movement of nature. And then, so this monk, this elder monk, is just another movement of nature. This is the freedom. This is a poetic, maybe, expression of the freedom the Buddha points to. That living our life as a parent, as a corporate executive, as an elementary school teacher, as somebody on their deathbed, as whatever we might be, but we can live that. That can be lived as a movement of nature. It doesn't have to, we don't have to live our life as if it's personally burdensome, no matter the conditions. That's what the Buddha points to, this unconditioned happiness that isn't a matter of conditions. And that's what this uh, monk, Bhatia, was pointing to. Badia is his name. So this is a, a well-known um, discourse from the Buddha on renunciation. And it really, I think, uh, captures our predicament and it involves lay people which is always helpful for us, right? So Venerable Ananda, who was the attendant to the Buddha and also the Buddha's cousin, um, was talking with one of the lay people, Tapusa, the householder. 
And then he relayed to the Buddha what this householder had said to him. And the householder was there too. So he told the Buddha, this is what the householder said. We are householders who indulge in sensuality, right? Our lives are all about, you know, as skillfully as we can, finding comforts. Sounds like us, right? What kind of vehicle should we have? What sort of home, what sort of people should we hang out with? Where should we live? What kind of job should we do? Of course, our choices are often limited by other causes and conditions that aren't in our control. But within whatever is within our control, right, we're negotiating comforts. How much of our life, even when we're on retreat, is about managing comforts? All the little adjustments in our sitting posture the terrible choice of where we're going to do walking practice. What will be most comfortable for me? Oh, there are flies out. Okay. Oh, it's stuffy in that room, right? It's like, there's not, what am I going to wear? How much? Should I have a second or third helping? All these sorts of things. How much caffeine? Yeah. And we laugh because we recognize that in us. And probably we laugh because we recognize how stressful it is. All this work to be comfortable is stressful. And we've put a lot of heart into it, and we're not done yet. Is anybody done finding comfort? No. I remember a long time ago, just after uh, some uh, a donor and IMS built the townhouse where Joseph Goldstein lives just not too far away from the retreat center here. And uh, he was giving a Dharma talk here, probably during one of the three-month retreats I was sitting. And he mentioned what a shock it was because he had been living in M200, that room, for many years, which you can imagine would not have a lot of privacy. (laughs) And uh, it's just being in the middle of retreats whether or not he was teaching them, he was always in the middle. And uh, so finally he had a, a decent place to live. And then he realized that even if he kept it neat, it still got dusty. <laughs> like, like you get it just right. And even if you're really careful not to mess it up, it still gets dirty. Right? And then it, there's this, and then there's that, and then this eventually, even a brand new place starts to fall apart. We're just at that place in the center of Minneapolis. It was actually an old building, but we totally gutted it. I mean, there was very little left, both external and internal. All the sheetrock, all the installation, the floors, the subfloors, all of that was removed and rebuilt. So when we moved in in 2008, I guess, you know, it was just had such a nice new feeling. And now, 11 years in, you know, we're just, it's like, Oh my God, we're going to actually have to repaint. You know, oh, we have to do this. Oh, we have to do that. This One of the stone floors is beginning to erode with all the salt and grit that we have in Minnesota. And it's just sort of this, uh, this reflection on how seeking comfort does isn't a lasting pleasure. It isn't doesn't mean we should give up on the project. First, we're not going to give up on the project. But now we can undertake the project of comfort 
with more wisdom. We're not expecting it to save us. So we're just interested in good enough comfort, right? So that our mind is willing to do the work of insight, develop that stability of awareness so the mind can see what it isn't seeing. Because we're interested, even if we don't have direct experience yet, we're interested because people have told us there is a more resonant happiness and it isn't about becoming more competent at getting comfortable because people have tried that. It's, we're fascinated to read about rich people and the kind of homes that they have, all the interesting things they have to be comfortable. Right? But, it, but we, we both are attracted, like, yeah, that would be nice. And I think we're, we're getting a sense like it never ends. It really never ends. And then when we're sick or getting old, it doesn't really help as much, right? Some things come our way, painful loss, for example, comes our way. It doesn't matter how comfortable our bed is, if we have one of those sleep number beds or one of those beds that can kind of come up at any angle. And it really doesn't matter. It's sort of, there's a, interesting sense of equanimity that you might have noticed because it's not uncommon for us to experience great loss, loss of a parent, loss of a lover, a friend, child even, it happens. And uh, we can, if when we have a little space at those times, a little curiosity, we can notice how disinterested our heart, our mind is in comfort. Isn't that right? And it's, it's just sort of, it, it, it's something to learn from. There's some wisdom because difficult experience can sometimes strip away superficiality. You know, we'd be otherwise involved in a, you know, from a wisdom point of view, a relatively meaningless pursuit of something that's not really going to deliver long-term happiness, but we don't know what else to do. So we pursue it, you know, and we have these passions that take on this. We allow, mostly through not paying attention, we allow to take on this really big meaning in the mind, in the heart. And if we're fortunate, we jump, leap from one obsession to another, not really lucky, in an ordinary sense, lucky. In a spiritual sense, it's really being unlucky, where we jump from one obsession with a passion to another, but we never really catch the point where we could see that that passion, that excitement, that pursuit, didn't really lead to a lasting happiness. But we're already on to the next thing. And the next thing, and so the that initial excitement. We do that watching TV sometimes too, right? It's like, oh yeah, this is good. This, And then when we're bored, before we really notice or really relax into that poignant moment when something that was actually good and entertaining ends. And then we just sit there noticing what that feeling's like, having been nicely entertained and now it's over, right? Because you notice there, in those moments, a real hunger for more entertainment. 
And then we really get that this pursuit of comfort that we see in living color here because there's just more clarity and more sensitivity when we're on retreat. I mean, it's good to laugh inwardly, at least, when we see ourselves pursuing it, you know, a little bit more honey in the tea or whatever it is. Or just, again, with the posture, like finding the perfect posture. I even see myself, the impulse to correct my posture, even when I'm feeling good in my posture, like it's really okay, but it's like it could be better. (laughs) (laughs) And some people report it today too. And it's a very common thing to see where it's like the heart, the mind becomes peaceful. And then it's sort of like, well, now what do I do? It's like looking for a project to do. So the Ananda says to the Buddha, reporting what these householders have said, um, we are householders who indulge in sensuality, delight in sensuality, enjoy it, rejoice in it. For us, indulging in sensuality seems, uh, for us who delight in this, Renunciation seems like a sheer drop-off. Yet I've heard, so this is the layperson, yet I've heard that in this doctrine, right, in the training that you offer, speaking to the Buddha, the hearts of even very young people, right, the young nuns and monks, leap up at renunciation, grow confident, steadfast, and firm, seeing it as peace. So right here is where this training is contrary to the great mass of people. In other words, I don't get it. I don't get. It's interesting. Uh, I came across, maybe you, some of you in your walking the loop uh, saw the, a few of the renunciates, the monastics that are helping Ajahn Shusito, who's uh, the teacher up at the Forest Refuge right now for this month. And just the symbol of somebody in the robes, the monastic robes with a shaved head, it's like both scares us and there's something we intuit, something intuitively attractive. I don't know if you've had that response yourself, but I definitely have. Right? We're, we're kind of curious about renunciation. And it often, because we haven't really reflected on it, it can veer off to like, I just want to be done a kind of nihilism. So there's this middle way the Buddha taught between this, I just want to be done with it. I've been betrayed one too many times in my pursuit of comfort, my pursuit of happiness based on sense experience, only to be disappointed, I'm done. I'm done pursuing sense pleasure. Or, yeah, but there's a couple more that might do the trick for me. Let me check those out first, right? And maybe even coming to IMS, strangely, was your way of checking out a sense pleasure. (laughs) Not what you thought. (laughs) No, it's true, because the pictures, it looks really nice. It can seem like a spa. I mean... (laughs) Quiet, tranquil, New England setting, you know, good vegetarian food nice people. I mean, all that's true. And in some ways, it's, it's quite, you know, beautiful and peaceful here. And it's really challenging work that we're doing together. 
So here's what the Buddha said in response. So it is, Ananda, so it is. Even I myself, before my awakening, right, before my deep insight, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, someone on the way to awakening, thought, renunciation is good, seclusion is good, but my heart didn't leap up at renunciation, didn't grow confident, steadfast, or firm, seeing it as peace. The thought occurred to me, what is the cause, what is the reason why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation, doesn't grow confident, steadfast, or firm, seeing it as peace? Right? It's, and this is like a nice example of the curiosity. Right? And one of our teachers, Saidu Tejaniya, Right, always says wisdom, one of the things he says is wisdom doesn't believe, wisdom investigates. So this is a real example of the Buddha investigating. Right, And now, of course, he's saying it out loud. In hindsight, this is what happened in his mind. Then the thought occurred to me. Right, So his own mind, he drops the question in, and, the, and an answer arose. I haven't seen the drawback of sensual pleasures I haven't pursued that theme. I haven't got interested, in other words, I haven't gotten interested in what sensual pleasures deliver. So we have a perfect place to explore the same thing. You're walking into your 45-minute or whatever walking, and your legs are getting tired, and, and just quite naturally you long to be back in the meditation hall and just to sit down, Right? It seems to be a promise that's going to, like a promise that's offering something. Like when you get back in that quiet hall and just sit down, it will feel so good. And then you can just notice what happens to that desire and any attachment to that idea of being done with the walking and see if the promise that you're going to be happy when you stop walking really comes true. Or you imagine you're hungry, it's 10 minutes before the meal, the 12 o'clock, and you imagine how nice it will be. There's a sense of how happy I'll be when I have my meal. And then just to observe the very real pleasure of gratification, right? I mean, it's something, it's not nothing when we get the food, assuming it's food we like, and we sit down and we eat it, but just keep watching, keep observing and see what that gratification is and what it isn't. We're not trying to pretend, we're not imposing anything, we just want to see things as they are. What is the experience of gratification? Oh, yeah, so lunch, sure, it wasn't much, it was really nice for a while. Actually, eating, for me at least, the joy of eating good food, sometimes, but it's not much better than the excitement of thinking I'm about to eat, the anticipation is in a weird way almost as pleasant and maybe even more pleasurable than actually eating the food. So it isn't long into the meal where I'm thinking about what's that would be so nice to be done (laughs) and get my dishes washed before the line gets long. Because now we're really in, like, if only I avoid the long line, then I'll be happy, right? And then it's like, I'll go take a nap. And, you know, for the first whatever number of minutes, 
it might feel really good, but it, again, it may not be as nice as anticipating the nap was. Actually lying there. You know, it's like, okay. <laughs> you could try the blanket, you can try this, window open, window closed. But eventually it's not fun anymore. It's not pleasurable anymore. Right? So to notice the whole movement from anticipation, gratification, and then really get interested in what happens next. Because we care about our well-being, because we wish to understand, to have a life with integrity, to be truthful with ourselves, right? We want to really observe what, how the mind, how the heart is pursuing happiness and what it delivers so that it can get reformed by what data we find, we collect through observation. What actually helps? What actually leads to a more resonant happiness? Right. So the Buddha realized that he hadn't taken up the theme of paying attention to the drawbacks of sensual pleasures. I haven't familiar, my, familiarized myself with it. That's why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation, doesn't grow confident, steadfast, or firm, seeing it as peace. Then the thought occurred to me, if having seen the drawback of sensual pleasures, I were to pursue that theme, and if having understood the reward of renunciation, I were to familiarize myself with it, there's the possibility that my heart would leap up at renunciation, grow confident, steadfast, firm, seeing it as peace. Because even from an intellectual point of view, we can imagine conceptually non-attachment as a kind of superpower. Like it would be really nice not to be attached to what people think about me or not attached to the relative comfort or discomfort in my body or not attached to whether I have experienced a lot of worldly success or blame and, you know, negative judgment. I would really like that immunity, right? So, but that's different, you know, wanting not to be attached is an attachment, right? We can get spellbound by that. A lot of us in Buddhist circles have spent some time spellbound. And then we do this sort of stinky thing where we pretend that we're not attached. Thinking that pretending that we're not attached somehow leads to non-attachment. And all of that, you know, is frustrating and embarrassing. (laughs) But we could just try what the Buddha says, which is to get really interested with this balanced present moment awareness. And we don't have to go looking for it because in any moment there will be some pursuit of comfort of sensual pleasure, right? And we can reflect on the possibility of renunciation or just notice moments where there's renunciation, where the thought arises, you know, just because of the force of habit, oh, honey, you can have another cup of tea. And the wisdom in the mind says, yeah, I drink it and then it would be done and I'd be right back where I am right now. So I don't think so. 
You know, just like not taking the bait. And then the mind might dangle another bait. You want a nap? <laughs> you know, you want to go outside? You want to sit down? You want, you know, just... And then we're already having these moments where, sure, I could do that, but I'm going to let that go. I could go into the office, break into the safe, get my cell phone, check the news. But just that pursuit of entertainment, like the burdensomeness of that, ah. Because we know what it's like, like the anticipation that there's some exciting news, and then we see the news. And it, it isn't, it doesn't um, really fulfill the promise, especially when we have that neurotic relationship to news that we're really using it as entertainment in a way or distraction. Like, give me a break from what it feels like, I'll get lost in the news or whatever your drug of choice, your addiction might be for a distraction. And then as these things go, the Buddha talking about his own practice, right? this really worked for him. So at a later time, having seen the drawback of central pleasures, I pursued that theme. Having understood the reward of renunciation, I familiarized myself with it. My heart leaped up at renunciation, grew confident, steadfast, and firm, seeing it as peace. And then he talks about how his because of that confidence and renunciation, it's really this insight into the path, that the path, the path toward real happiness, the happiness of peace, is a path of letting go. And the letting go happens naturally through understanding things as they are. And then this deepening confidence in letting go allows the heart to become even more quiet, more stable, see things more clearly just as they are, which opens up all the insights. And the deeper the understanding, the more the letting go. Ajahn Chah, he talks about Nibbana, the awakening, as the realization of non-grasping, realizing the heart that's not grasping. So ultimately what we're What we're abandoning is attachment. We're renouncing the cause of suffering, craving. We're not renouncing a comfortable seat or a nutritious meal or a hug from a friend. I mean, you can. You can experiment with those things. In a way, you're renouncing hugs from your dear ones while you're on retreat. But it isn't the hug or the lack of hug. It's the mind's dependence, the mind's expectation that a sense experience is more than what it is, that it's going to deliver something that it doesn't deliver. And this is a subtle point and an important point because one of the things that really helps us on retreats like this is to, when joy, pleasure comes your way, and there's a meal that really 
just makes you happy or the sunshine makes you happy or sensing the other people in the room with you is a cause for happiness. We don't need to be afraid of those wholesome moments of pleasure, of happiness. The practice is not to be confused by those moments of joy, moments of happiness. And the way we practice non-confusion is really being intimate with the joy that comes our way. Oh yeah, this is a beautiful feeling. It's this feeling being known. It feels like this. Now people don't like it when I say it's just this feeling being known. But in a way, the the poignancy that whatever it is, the pleasure, pleasurable moment that's arisen, some sight, some sound, some sensation in the body, some memory, whatever it might be, that it's just this present moment phenomena being known. Feels like this, looks like this, So we let it land, we let it really be what it is, not more, not less. And then the renunciation is really this, like why ruin a beautiful moment by grasping it? I mean, we do it, but we do it because we're not seeing clearly. As we start to have more stability of awareness, we see that wanting the the lunch to last is suffering. Wanting the nap to last is suffering. Wanting the good sit to last is suffering. Wanting the sunshine to last is suffering. We really get that lesson over and over and over again. So the heart naturally learns to let go, to allow joy to arise and pass, to allow sorrow to arise and pass. This is really our work. And life teaches us, you know, and it's just a question of whether we're a slow learner or a relatively fast learner. And the way we speed up the learning is we amplify the experience of the present moment by cultivating the stability of awareness. When we have a more ordinary mind like we often do out in the world, we're still learning, but the lessons aren't amplified by samadhi, by the stability of awareness this continuity of present moment awareness. Because of the distractedness, the mind is just more superficial. So we'll see some things, but it doesn't land as deep. The data isn't quite as clean. So it isn't as impactful in how the heart, you know, how the heart is learning, the kind of the speed of the learning, the development of insight. So when we can, You know, we develop a daily sitting practice and we come on these retreats and we develop some momentum. And then we're seeing the same stuff we see out in our daily life, but we really see it and it's impactful. Like when you catch your mind judging another retreatant because of the t-shirt they're wearing or the socks they have or how much or how little food they've taken, Right? And you really see what judgment is. It has a big impact. Oh yeah, honey, that's not the way. That doesn't help. Right? Without those words. It's just a direct comprehension like that's unskillful. That's a cause for suffering. 
And when you notice a moment where the mind is being really generous or really kind, really forgiving, really discerning, having clarity, then it's, the mind realizes, oh, this is so helpful. This is so good. This is a cause for release, for a deepening of understanding. I'll just end with um, another passage from the Buddha. This is um, beautiful verses. Seclusion is happiness for one content who knows the Dhamma, the way things are, who has seen. Friendship with the world is happiness for those restrained toward all beings. Restrained toward all beings meaning this this resonant wish not to cause harm, to restrain ourselves from contributing, being complicit with harming. Dispassion is amidst the world is happiness for those who have let go of sense desires. But the end of the conceit, I am, that's the greatest happiness of all. So let's just take a few moments, let go of the words. Allowing the moment to be as simple as it is. We have about 30 minutes for walking practice and then we'll come back at nine o'clock for the evening set. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.